Friday. Um, I walked into my office, and if you've ever been in there, um, one side of it is my library. I've got books in there and reference books and theology books and I've got Calvin's Institutes. I've got every sermon that Spurgeon ever preached. I've got books on how to grow a church. I've got books on seven easy steps for financial whatever. And I couldn't find one. I couldn't find one that was adequate for a moment like this. And so I sat down with just my Bible and a piece of paper because there's only one book that God has written. And I just begged God for whatever He would have for us today that He would let me know. And I think the first thing before we understand and before we dive into the Scriptures or do anything like that, we have to understand that we are human beings. We have a body and we have a mind. And what we have experienced as a community and as a church family, by clinical definition, would be trauma. Um, and the definition for trauma is it's the emotional and physical response to pain. It's even used in, in surgery that, that if there's a contusion on the skin and, and the skin bruises around it, a, a term a doctor would use is that the skin has felt trauma around it. And that's what happens in moments like this is that our emotional, our mental life and capacity has experienced a trauma to it. But what accompanies trauma after that and how we express trauma is called grief. And grief is our emotional and physical response to loss and to pain. It doesn't just have to be a death. It can be a number of things. And... I really felt like the Lord impressed upon me that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And I think sometimes we, we stained glass window Jesus and we say that he was fully God and, and that he did the miracles and that he did all of that. But when you read the Gospels, you see the humanity of Christ, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus had a a human body. And Jesus got tired. Jesus wept. In the Garden of Gethsemane, under immense amount of pain and emotional turmoil, Jesus sweat drops of blood. There's a clinical term for that. And I felt like the Lord say, be human. It's okay to be human right now. And we understand, and doctors and psychologists would tell you that with grief, that there's sort of five markers, if you will, emotions that come with grief. The first one being denial. Um, I read this week that, that what denial is, is when you get the news or when something traumatic happens, your body protects itself. And it goes into shock. 
And in Mayo Clinic, it said that, that shock paces our pain because we can't consume all of that information at one time. So what our body does is, is it protects itself and it processes it with questions like, wait, what did you say? With statements like, no, I was just with him. And you need to understand that it's okay to feel that, that your body and your mental capacity is protecting itself and it's processing that. The second thing is anger. Soon follows denial. And Weston, I want to tell you something that you've maybe never heard in church before. That it is okay to be angry with God. We have an entire book of the Bible called the Psalms that when we see the writers of the Psalms are angry with God, Jacob wrestled with God. God's big enough to handle your anger and your questions. As Job shook his fist at God when his whole family died. God can handle that. But here is the key. God wants your anger. God wants it brought to him. And the anger is great. And the anger shows itself. Like last night when I was praying with our youngest daughter, we always pray for the people who've gone before us. For Gaga and for Papa. For Aunt Judy, for Dave. And last night, my six-year-old daughter added a name to the list. And I was so angry when I left the room. I'm weary of adding names to the list. Did you know that Jesus got angry? That at the death of Lazarus, it says that Jesus stood there at the tomb. And it says that when he saw everyone weeping, that his soul was greatly troubled. Um, it's a poor translation because what it translates to literally is he was angry. That Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus and the tears that were in his eyes were not just tears of sorrow. They were tears of anger. That Jesus was angry at death. That Jesus was angry at the brokenness of sin. That it's okay to be angry. Soon what follows anger is bargaining. And, and in bargaining, we begin to say statements. Like, why didn't I call him back? Or, or if I hadn't have canceled that, I could have been there for that. And it's okay it's okay to say those things because what bargaining is, is, is bargaining is beginning to believe and realize that we are not in control. And it's your body's mind and, and your mind's way of coming to an understanding of trying to process and play out all the scenarios that would be so perfect. 
And then we begin to maybe understand now when Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow because today is sufficient for its own troubles. Or when Jesus' brother James says, don't say tomorrow we will, for who's promised tomorrow? But rather say, if the Lord wills. You say, we learn, we come in on Sundays, and we learn, you take notes in our notebook. But it's times like this when our theology is rocked. You see, we forget so easily, Westside, that we are not God and that we are not in control. I have said countless times from this stage that no one is exempt from a phone call that changes your life forever. But here's the problem. We all think that we are the exception until something like this happens. And then we begin to bargain. And it's a process. And then we come to an understanding that there is no perfect scenario. And quickly after bargaining comes what they would call depression. By the way, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus tells the disciples, you stay here and you pray and I'm going to go over here. And the Bible says that as he walked, he fell to the ground. And then he said these words to God, the Father. Father, let this cup pass from me. What is Jesus doing? Jesus, in his humanity, is bargaining with the Father. He's saying if salvation can be accomplished in any other way, in any other way than that bloody cross, God, reveal it to me now. It's okay to do that. This depression is not what psychologists would call a, a prolonged or clinical state of depression. The term that I looked up that accompanies this is deep sadness. And it hits you at different times. When you go over to the office and you open the fridge and you see a gallon of chocolate milk. Or when you check the mail and you open up the package and there's a book for your residency that you're supposed to read and you just fall to the ground in the driveway. It is a deep sadness. And somewhere in that sadness, they say, I haven't, I don't know. They say what follows that is called acceptance. And acceptance is not a hallmark of the sun will rise tomorrow or something ridiculous like that. Acceptance says we will never be the same. But maybe one day we can be whole. That's what acceptance says. We will net this church and this congregation because of the life and impact of a 21-year-old boy, will never be the same. And because of the tragedy and the trauma, we will never be the same. But there is a day in which we will be whole. 
we will be whole. One of the writers says, the reality is that you will grieve forever, that you will not get over the loss of a loved one, but you learn to live with it. You will heal and you will rebuild yourself around the loss you have suffered. You will be whole again, but you will never be the same. Nor should you be the same, nor would you want to. C.S. Lewis, the great author, says what grief is, is that grief is love in reverse. Grief is love in reverse because here's what we do when we grieve. We look back on the two hours in the office before he left, looking up YouTube videos and laughing and buying, wanting to buy sneakers and telling jokes. And we say, I didn't know, but man, that was a sweet moment. We replay the memories and we love in reverse. So where do we turn to in moments like this? Westside, I hope you understand that what's out there on that wall is not a slogan. And it is not a catchphrase. But everything in our life is all about Jesus. All about Jesus is not for sunny days. I get up here week in and week out and spill my guts to prepare you for this. Because this is the moment when Jesus goes from being an accessory to being a necessity. St. Augustine says, Jesus becomes all when Jesus is all that you have. And why? Why is Jesus? I mean, listen, these moments make you survey your life and what you believe. Why Jesus? Is it because we're Americans? Is it because it's just the right thing? Why is Christianity better or true than all the other religions? This is where I go in moments like this. Why do I believe what I believe? All other religions have a prophet that comes along and says, this is what you do to get to God. Jesus is the only man who comes down and says, I am God. Christianity is the only religion that says God became flesh and became human. Well, what's the significance of that? Why does that matter? Why does that level of theology apply at this moment? Two words. Jesus knows. Jesus knows grief. In Isaiah, the prophecy says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus knows grief. 
And then it says in Matthew, he took Peter and Zebedee, the two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And he went a little farther and he bowed his face to the ground. Listen, we do not have a God that is distant right now. Listen, Christianity is the only religion who has a God who has scars on his hands and a scar on his, thigh, on, on his side. And he comes along and he says, I don't just teach you about pain. I don't just teach you the answer to pain. I bore pain. I know pain. He doesn't just know grief. It goes on to say that he carries our grief. In Isaiah, it says, surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. That Jesus carries that. The significance of that is this. That there is a profound difference when you have experienced a tragedy like this and somebody sits down next to you, rattles off Bible verses, and says all of these things that are true. But that's not what you need in that moment. There's a profound difference with someone who sits next to you, holds your hand, and weeps. Wes said, I am telling you that that is our God. That that is Jesus in this moment. He not only carries our grief, but in this moment, Jesus is gentle with us. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Do you know what that means? A bruised reed is a reed that's getting ready to snap. It's under too much weight. Smoldering coals of a fire that is seconds from going out. And if we are honest in this room today, many of us feel that that is a picture of our faith. Because the questions and the anger is real. We did what we were supposed to do. We sent word out. 80 people came to this church and prayed, and they prayed all into the night. And the answer we got was devastating, and it was not the answer that we wanted. And we are seconds away with our fists clenched of saying, the faith that I have is getting ready to get smoldered out. And then here comes Jesus who just simply sits next to us and says that that's okay. I'm gentle with you. How you feel is how you feel. This is our God. And one of the only things that I can say to you today is this, is we have to guide our grief to Jesus, not away from him. Not away from him. Look at me. Don't give up. Don't give up. This is where we press in. He who called you is faithful and he will surely do it. 
keep pressing in. And in time, when we keep coming to Him and when we keep coming to Him, I think we see Him for who He truly is. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said God has three tools for His children. The Word of God, prayer and meditation, and suffering. And we have all been enrolled in the school of suffering. So the question that hangs over this congregation in our presence today is this. How do we get through this? What do we do? The level of trauma is real. Thinking about just even gathering in here today, I find myself waiting to see him. So how do we move forward in this? And in, the, in, the, in God's sovereignty in a way that I will never understand. Seven days ago, JT was right here. And he preached his first sermon, which now has 10,000 views on our social media. Yes. That little punk would rub that in on me right now. He would just be like, my first one got 10,000 views, man. <clears throat> I mean, he's just up in heaven, just flexing, just saying all that stuff. What a lot of you don't know is um, we worked on that for a long time in our preaching labs, and he actually preached that sermon the first time that he gathered with the West Side youth. And he preached that sermon the very first time on his 21st birthday back there. Man, he was a gift, wasn't he? A 21-year-old boy who was so excited that on his 21st birthday, he didn't want to do anything else than gather with those kids and to preach his first sermon with them. And, and we would meet at, at Myrtle's at 5.30. Myself, him, and Adam, we would do our Bible studies, and, and we worked on that. Did you know, did you know that JT's last 24 hours were this? At 5.30, JT was at Myrtle's with his Bible open, and we were reading Psalm chapter 6, we prayed for each other, me, him, and Adam. He left. He ran a few errands. He took a youth to go play golf for a couple hours. I think that's why he wanted to be a, a pastor, because he thought that was work, you know? <laughs> and he came back, and he helped me pick up the church van up at Swafford's. We came back laughed. We planned a couple of youth events together. He left and saw some friends. I was going to grill pork steaks with Randy. 
Think about those 24 hours of what is said of JT's life. That from 5.30 that morning, he had his Bible open, ministering to people all throughout the day, praying all through. I mean, what a 24 hours. And as we were getting that sermon together, I just kept hitting him with this question, and, and he was getting a little bit frustrated with me because I wouldn't let him just get off the hook. I just kept saying, tell me in one sentence, tell me in one sentence, tell me in one sentence. And he was saying, oh, you know, well, I think this, and, and, the, and I said, no, 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 tell me in one sentence, tell me, tell me in one sentence. And then finally, it was just like this moment, something clicked. And he said, if I had to say anything to anybody as I look over my life and everything that I've experienced and the suffering and all of that, I would say that Jesus is faithful. And I stepped back and I leaned back in the chair. And I said, that's it. You got a dog that'll hunt, boy, you better preach that. You better preach that. His eyes lit up so big like he had found a diamond that he could not wait to share with people. He practiced his sermon over and over and over again. And, and when he came to his preaching lab, we were gone on vacation, but Matt was here. He walked in and Matt was like, how are you feeling? He said, good, good. You know, I think it's going to be right at like 30 minutes. And he did his preaching lab, blew through it in like 17 minutes. <laughs> JT didn't even drink caffeine or anything like that. And on Sunday, with doing the church clap and all of that stuff, his resting heart rate on his Apple Watch was 120. <laughs> That's JT. Just a ball of energy. We had a sweet congregant who said, hey, can I transcribe JT's sermon And in the irony of this, Westside, how do we get through this and what do we do? Is this. It's what he told us seven days ago. Right here. And he said with passion in his eyes and the Holy Spirit in his heart that Jesus is Faithful. He said these words. So it's an honor to be able to stand up here during the This Is My Story and be able to tell y'all mine. My big idea today. The one thing that I can tell y'all from my story is that Jesus is faithful. Now regardless of what I've went through, Regardless of whatever I'm about to tell you, it is this, that Jesus is faithful. And then at the end of his sermon, Jonathan Thurman said this. So in closing, I want to say that I love y'all and thank y'all for allowing me to give evidence that Jesus did die. And three days later, he rose again. And he's been faithful to me in my past. 
and he's faithful now. And then JT said seven days ago through the power of the Holy Spirit and in God's sovereignty, he said he will be faithful in the future. And then he was hurtled into eternity. And so, Westside, the only thing that I have and the only thing that I can tell you is one more word, and that's it. Westside, seven days ago, JT said that Jesus is faithful. And seven days later, our lives have changed forever. But I'm here to tell you, last Sunday, Jesus was faithful. But Westside, I'm here to tell you that this Sunday, that Jesus is still faithful. That he's still faithful. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the faithfulness of God in Christ Jesus never changes. And now, now we understand that faithfulness to a whole new degree. That Jesus is still faithful. I've been living off of seven words. That Friday, as I scoured my Bible, I went to every passage that I've ever highlighted, that I've ever done anything, my favorite passages, and I begged God to speak to me and to give me a word. And he gave me seven words. And it's this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Listen, Christianity is not about our grip on God. It's about His grip on us. This is, what, this is what it is. That Jesus is still faithful. Even when we are faithless. And so Westside, I close with these verses. The Apostle Paul over 2,000 years ago writes these, and I believe they're a word for us today. He says this in 2 Corinthians, so we do not lose heart. How? How? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then look at the audacity of what the Apostle Paul says. For this light, momentary affliction. That's almost offensive to me. Paul, how can you say that it's light and that it's momentary? Because it's doing something. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That seven days ago, JT was preaching about Jesus being faithful. And seven days later, he is worshiping with Jesus. He's seeing his face. He's worshiping with his mom. 
That's the glory that's promised. So how do we get there? It's the next verse. As we look not to the things that are seen, there is no answer that you can see that is around us. But we look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here is where we live today. Westside, we have hearts full of grief. And we have a hope full of glory. We have hearts busted open with grief. And we have a hope full of glory because Jesus is still faithful. We live in the still. Almost 200 years ago, there was a man who lived in Chicago by the name of Horatio Spafford. A great fire broke out in the city. And it was the most traumatizing experience that he had ever lived through. It burned all of his businesses, killed thousands of people. And a year later, in order to rebuild his businesses, he moved over to London. He had some things that he had to get together first. So he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of him. The ship that they were on collided with another ship in the middle of the night. And 98% of the people that were on the boat died, including his four daughters. He received a telegram from his wife when she arrived in London with one word on it, alone, alone. And Horatio Spafford, a devout Christian, boarded a boat to go to London to be with his wife. And on the same concordance, the same spot where the ship hit another ship and his four daughters were below him in a watery grave, he pinned the line when sorrows like sea billows roll. And he wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. You don't get a song filled with hope like it is well without a heart busted open by grief. And what lives in the middle is Jesus is still faithful. West side, Jesus is still faithful. Jesus is still faithful. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing that it is well. And for those of you in this room today who have been on the fence, if you are honest with yourself, please let this cause honesty in us as a church. God, I don't have time for mumbling and for bickering and for complaining. God, may this cause us to linger longer in the lobby and to hug more and to say I love you and to be there for people. 
What if, what if this tragedy unleashes for us as a church the brotherly affection that we really need, that if we're honest, we don't have, and that it causes us to cross an aisle and to hug someone and love them and say, I'm sorry, I've had conflict in my heart. Don't let this be wasted. But for those of you who have been on the fence, who would know that in the depths of your soul, you don't know Christ like this. You don't know Christ like JT knew Jesus. That in this moment, you really don't understand that Jesus knows our grief, bears our grief.